Hello, and welcome to episode 95 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. I am also the host of the MedTech Leaders community. You can learn more about that at medtechleaders.net. Today, we travel to Austin, Texas to learn about digital surgery with the help of Jawad Ali, MD, a surgeon, and a community builder. The highly regarded consulting firm Kearney wrote, quote, Digital surgery has the potential to transform the standard of care by delivering better outcomes and reducing invasiveness, resulting in faster recovery times and a lower total cost of care, end quote. We will learn about the six pillars of digital surgery, how medtech intersects with this area, and how medtech companies can be sure they are not left behind. Here is a quick clip of our conversation about devices. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are devices which are fine being purely hardware. And then I think there are devices that, you know, have room for some kind of smart integration like the staplers. Be sure to check the show notes for links to a book Jawad recommends, the Austin MedTech Connect community, Sages, and Validy Partners. If you like this podcast and think it would benefit a colleague, simply share it via the share link on your podcast player of choice. And also, ranking the podcast is always appreciated. Let's move on to this really interesting conversation about digital surgery and what it means to the future of medtech. Jawad, it is terrific to have you on the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. You know, thanks for spending time with us today, especially to talk about this really interesting subject, which is digital surgery. Great to be here, Ted. Excited to talk to you about it. And so let's just start, talk about what your current role is. You have a couple different roles, but what is your role? What do you do? That's right. So I'm a full-time surgeon. I do a combination of acute care and trauma surgery, as well as general elective surgery, which includes gallbladder, endoscopy, anti-reflux surgery. Okay, so people, would, would they call that general surgery? General surgery is an interesting term. I think it's taken on a couple of different things. You know, it's not quite as general as it used to be for the most part. Mm-hmm. I think I have a broader practice than a lot of general surgeons because I do both acute care and trauma, and my surgery practice includes a decent amount of endoscopy. But, um, you know, exactly, it would be considered part of the general surgery landscape. And what is acute care surgery? Acute care means, you know, uh, appendicitis, cholecystitis, as well as more severe complications like perforated diverticulitis or, you know, um, diabetic foot wounds, things like that. Okay, very good. So situations that are sort of an emergency, the action has Mm -hmm. to be taken, the patient's in dire straits and, you know, an operation is required and, and you've got to act. That's right. Okay. And then you also are involved as a partner in a company, a sort of a consulting company, right? Tell us about that. That's right. So I founded uh, Validy Partners, which is myself and two other clinicians who have been working in the medtech space for several years. We would kind of talk to each other about it. We're interested in what, what we were doing. And then I decided to formalize that 
into a partnership and, and we formed that about two and a half years ago and it's been really great. Awesome. And how many companies have you worked with in this two and a half year period? Gosh, probably around nine companies, I would say. Wow, that's mm-hmm. awesome. And so you're when you're working with a company, are you typically pretty early on in the process of them generating a product idea and trying to vet it? It's a good question. So multiple stages, we do focus on the early stage. One thing I learned as I've you know, worked in this industry is that the more focused of a niche you have, actually, the more relevant you are to a particular company. And so before it was kind of any company wanting clinical advice, but as I've gone on, I do focus on earlier stage companies, specifically in the digital surgery space. Okay, very good. Perfect. Great. And just for the audience to know that, um, you know, we're going to be, once we've really defined what digital surgery is, which we'll get to in a a couple minutes here, uh, we're going to start to associate it with the impact it has on med tech companies' strategies um, as they try to go forward. So how can a med tech company be involved and what should you be thinking about as a med tech professional when you think about digital surgery? And so that, that'll be interesting when we get to that, but we will get to that once we've sort of gone through a couple other things. But first let's, let's start about, I, I like to start with a story, you know, a real life story about how your past clinical work, you know, led to your interest in digital surgery. For sure. So you know, it's kind of funny. So I'm from Pakistan and we always joke that if you're from Pakistan, you're either a doctor or an engineer or a failure, you know, which is not true, but it's kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of the, the way it feels like. Um, yeah. And so I did biomedical engineering. I was like, you know, I'll split my odds. I either engineering or medicine. And uh, in undergrad, I, I really liked the clinical practice environment of medicine. It was like really dynamic for treating patients, for making decisions. And so I went the medical route, but I always wanted to have the innovation and technical aspect as part of my career. And so I did, you know, the device design track at AM. And in my residency, I worked with a physician called uh, named after um, Daniel Peterson, who's a neurosurgeon, and he had founded a company called Alifair Biosciences. They're making a uh, new tissue matrix and using it for a couple of things, including decreasing um, pathologic abdominal adhesions. And so I got to, you know, do surgery with him. And then outside of that, we did animal trials and I got a little window into the world of medical technology. And so that kind of opened my eyes to the space. And after I finished residency, I continued, you know, to reach out, network, work with different companies. Um, but that was kind of my first real exposure to medtech. Okay, so so you're, um, and we can just segue right into your career from this. But is your first degree was it engineering? Yeah, biomedical engineering. Okay, that's great. And my dad was an electrical engineer. I've always okay. felt like. Um, the some of the physicians that I've met that are engineers actually are the best physicians. Well, I mean, I, I do think that the engineering training experience gives you a mindset for which to tackle problems. You know, you approach things in like a problem solving kind of way and like breaking down the problem. How do you solve it? Um, so I, I, I think it is a good framework for, for like clinicians to have as they go in, into practice. Then tell us a little bit about the the work in the med tech community there in Austin. So I know that you've, in, in addition to the company that you've got, the, the consulting company that you do outside of your everyday work as a surgeon, you also have been working to create a community in Austin. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, Validity Partners are a consulting firm. And then as I kind of met with people throughout the med tech community in Austin, I noticed that 
lots of different people were siloed within their specific, you know, sector, whether that's academia or clinical work or, you know, investors or, you know, all the advisory companies. And then there was the other kind of silos of like early stage med tech people, people that work for the strategics and also this large presence here in Austin of the large tech companies with like Google, Facebook, Amazon, you know, Samsung all have large presences here, but they're not very well networked. And so I met with a lot of the companies doing a lot of the organizations doing work here. And I felt like there was room for another group to kind of really focus on the connectivity aspect of it. And so we formed Austin Method Connect, formed our initial board, and it's been super fun kind of working on that, on that problem. Awesome. That's great. Austin MedTech Connect, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Austin AustinMedTech.org is our website. AustinMedTech.org. I'll have to go take a mm-hmm. look at that. And for the international listeners, I mean, most Americans know that Austin is like a, a focal point of innovation in the United States uh, on a lot of different fronts. Uh, but now uh, I know several people that are in the Austin area that have started MedTech companies. So it's it's a focal point for for development, entrepreneurship, and so on. So um, most Americans know that, but I've got a lot of international listeners. So just just so you know, okay. So let's work. Let's go into digital surgery and get into some detail about that. We talked about when you and I were preparing for this. You you talked about uh, something like six pillars. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing some research, you know, in the outline that I sent you, you saw that huge list of, of what other people consider elements right. of digital surgery, but they might be part of one of your pillars. Let's talk, what are the components of digital surgery? For sure. So I think it's a good question. The term is a little bit nebulous, and I think there's room for people to define it. And so to that end, myself and um, Dr. Zoka and uh, several other surgeons through the SAGES organization... SAGES stands for Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Are working on a paper called Defining Digital Surgery. And we've broken it down into six elements, and they include uh, data capture, data analytics, advanced visualization, connectivity, smart instruments, and robotics. And so all of those kind of are a way to segment the different sectors uh, of the field, but they're all very interconnected. So, you know, you can break it down to different, in different ways, but that's just a way to help kind of get our mind around, you know, what are all the components? And then from there, you know, obviously they all kind of connect with each other. Would you repeat those, please? Sure. So it's um, data capture, which includes, you know, surgical video, but also everything around perioperative care. So like um, all of the EHR data for patients, all of the intraoperative kinematics, all of the postoperative outcomes, you know, even longitudinal data. Then there's data capture, which is, and then data analysis, which is, you know, all of the um, AI algorithms around analyzing this information. Um, And then from there, we kind of develop tools like advanced visualization, which gives surgeons things like intraoperative blood flow analysis or um, guidance on, you know, not quite as simple as where to cut, where not to cut, but something like that. Um, and then also guidance on perioperative care of patients. You know, we talked a little bit in, in, uh, in our chat before this, you know, guidelines on managing patients outside of the OR. Um, and then there's a large segment of connectivity, which includes uh, telesurgery, telementoring, that whole space. And then enhanced instrumentation, which is, you know, instruments that have some kind of smart sensors built in. An example of that is staplers that detect tissue thickness and tell you if, 
you know, there is, uh, if the tissue is too thick or not to staple, including tissue um, tools like my friend Albert Huang has a company called Allotrope, which helps you detect the ureter and things like that. And mm -hmm. of course, robotic surgery, which is, you know, I think in the past, it was as simple as a surgeon controlling a robot that's next to them. But I think as we go forward, it's going to include more and more things such as, you know, some autonomous actions from the robotic arms, um, you know, and then that kind of integrates into connectivity in terms of telesurgery and, and enabling that kind of stuff. Just to repeat, the six pillars are one, data capture, two, data analytics, three, advanced visualization, four, connectivity, five, smart instruments, and six, robotics. Okay, very good. And when I mentioned a minute ago this long list that I had, if you go through my long list, I'm not going to repeat it to confuse people, but it essentially is captured in everything that you said. So my list of like eight or ten data points are captured in the six uh, pillars that you just talked about. Okay. Right. And there's different ways to kind of slice the pie, you know, different people do it in different ways, but kind of, I think we all talk about the same kind of uh, segment of, of things. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, what's interesting to me is like each of these areas is, is unique in its own way. Like you, you, you could talk about uh, and, and sort of transformative, like an example would be telesurgery and telesurgery probably could be interpreted to mean that somebody is performing the surgery um, at a distance or are they coaching and proctoring or precepting at a distance or is it all together? No, that's a great point. Yeah. So there are some nuances in terminology. So telesurgery generally is operating from a distance. And okay. even when you sit at the console, you know, I mean, in a way it's kind of telesurgery because you're not physically controlling the robot. You're like several feet away, you know, but practically right. you could be in the next room in the next city and then, you know, across the ocean, you know, it's kind of, in a way it's the same thing. Um, and then telementoring is kind of the you know, ability to see someone else's screen and do what's called telestration, which is move a pointer on their screen and things like that. Okay. And we've got the companies like Proxime and Explorer yes. uh, Surgical and yes, there's several others that, that Avail. Uh, which one? Avail. Avail. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple more. There's one out of France. There, there, there's a lot of them. Yeah. There's yeah. several. Um, and even what they do in my mind is pretty amazing. Um, and I've interviewed yeah. the CEOs of, both Proxime and Explorer Surgical, at least um, until they were acquired by GH, GHX, uh, acquired uh, Explorer Surgical. So if you look at the concept of digital surgery, you know, is, it, is the concept new or is it just a, a natural evolution because all these different things have been developing you know, individually in some cases, but now they need to be brought together. For sure. I mean, I think if you think of things like robotic surgery, it's been around for almost 20 years now, you know? Yeah. I remember I Eric Wilson was giving a talk at the Surgical Disruptive Technology Summit a couple of years ago, and he said that as soon as he saw a robot, he realized it was basically putting a computer between the surgeon and the patient, and that had so much potential, you know? So I think, and I was impressed by that because that was like 20 years ago, and to see that potential and to really kind of um, take advantage of it, you know, I thought that was really insightful. But I think that I think a lot of these technologies have been around for a long time. Just recently, we kind of have 
a combination of things like the computing power. I think, you know, surgeon and patient acceptance of using this kind of technology. I think a long time ago, people were like, I don't really want someone controlling a robot from far away, that kind of thing, you know, fear around it. Um, I think, you know, things like, even things like the pandemic have opened us up to, you know, doing like telemedicine and this kind of technology, things like Google Maps and smart driving cars have, I think, allowed us to be okay with technologies that guide us. And I think the technologies themselves have gotten better to where the more effective and more safe. And so, you know, I think, I think in the last five years, it's really kind of becoming more and more um, prevalent. And I think in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be even more. I think, I think we're like in the digital surgery revolution right now. And also something as simple as bandwidth, to have the bandwidth to send totally. a lot of data, you know, across. Yes. Yeah. Like, yes, definitely. Yeah, the images and the, also the security of the bandwidth to make sure that yes. you're doing t- telesurgery that that's right. Something doesn't, something doesn't stop in the middle of, you know, totally. Arm or whatever. <clears throat> totally. Even telementoring, you know, and Proxima is an awesome company. They do a great job of having a pretty kind of um, low cost solution that provides an effective way to do telementoring i think i think is as a result of advances in bandwidth and lower cost of technology like when you're in surgery when you're doing your practice every day whether you're preparing for surgery or you're in surgery or after surgery do you sometimes come across things where you say gosh i wish i had something to solve this problem or you know or is there um or i need to invent something whatever it might be do you do you sometimes see things where digital surgery might help you. Definitely. And I think, you know, most surgeons think of the world in a way like what is a practical solution to this problem, you know? Um, and, and there's problems that we all have. There's like cases that we deal with that, you know, the outcomes aren't as good as we would like them to be, you know? Uh, like for some cases like gallbladder surgery, or for example, the outcomes are great. And I think a lot of work has been done to do that where now we have super safe, outpatient laparoscopic colostectomy with complication rates, you know, less than 1%. Um, I think other cases like, you know, for example, we, uh, we deal with a lot of peripheral vascular disease at uh, my hospital. And I think in a lot of hospitals on the country where the outcomes aren't as good as we would like them to be, you know, and I think part of that is patient management where, you know, the blood glucose isn't controlled. They don't have a great orthotic for their foot. Part of that is intraoperative decision-making where, you know, um, they might have a pulse on their foot, but they have a lot of microvascular disease from chronic diabetes. And, you know, we don't have a great way to assess that. Um, and then part of that is post-operative management. So there, there was a solution, for example, that looked at a patient's, you know, demographic data, comorbidities, smoking status, things like that, gave me intraoperative feedback on, you know, the microvascular flow and maybe some kind of guidance on, you know, an amputation at this level would have a 75% chance, chance of success. Then also like here's the, the main things to monitor the patient with. And then the patient could have, you know, like a, a wearable or a patient app that would guide them through all this. And, you know, you can see where like an integrated ecosystem, which includes the preoperative, intraoperative and postoperative phases would be super valuable and really kind of changing the way we take care of patients. And so that's sort of relating back to what you and I were talking about uh, prior to starting the official podcast, which is sort of having an algorithm that results in a total guidance. Right. Yeah. Especially if, if it's customized, you know, like I mentioned, um, like ventral hernia, for example, we have some pretty broad guidelines like body mass index, you know, 
bone-mass index is above 35, then they're at higher risk for, you know, recurrent hernia or wound complications. But that's not necessarily as true for every patient. Some patients, they might need to get the BMI below 30. Some patients might be okay at a BMI of 35, you know, like meaning acceptable risk. And so we kind of treat patients with these pretty blunt guidelines. But if there was something that, you know, let's say analyzed outcomes data for 10,000 patients, and now you put in your specific patient in front of you, and they'll give you a pretty risk stratified outcome, you know, based on that specific patient's demographics, like it'd be really useful. Like, you know, this specific patient will have, you know, 25% chance of like hernia recurrence. Um, and, and there are tools like that, but they're not quite as smart as they could be. You know, there's been a lot of work done with like Nesquip and things like that and the Carolina's hernia score. And, and, you know, and those are good tools, but I think the next generation will be even more advanced. And I think they'll be more customized and take in more data points, you know. Okay. Uh, that's super interesting. And a, a couple of weeks ago when you and I were talking and getting ready for this um, a podcast, you talked about there is a, there are areas of surgery where the outcomes are pretty darn good as they are right now and that digital surgery or robotic surgery might not really improve, uh, investment in those areas might not really improve anything. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think lab cold is a good example. I think a regular laparoscopic colostectomy, you do a good dissection, you get your critical view of safety, you know, and there's like guidelines, guidelines on that as far as technical points that the surgeon should achieve to uh, decrease the risk of like bowel duct injury. I think you do that. I don't know if there's much more to improve on. I mean, I think you can always do better, but the complication rates are like, you know, 0.5, less than 0.5% or something like that for, you know, significant injury. Um, and so to have the added cost of like a robotic platform, for example, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's the most valuable place. Um, so I think, you know, we do have to be selective about where we apply these expensive technologies, but at some point also when you have, there's no real cost to run an algorithm on a data set, you know, once you already have the algorithm. So I think we can do better even for those cases, like let's say we control their like perioperative glucose, for example, or let's say we control for perioperative hypotension, you know, things like that. I think, I think even those cases have opportunities to address that are maybe less obvious than having like an anastomotic leak or, you know, some very like obvious surgical complication. Okay. Okay. And when you talk about the, the six pillars, you see like from almost the, some of it's before the patient even gets to the hospital, like some of their preoperative consultation with you, for example, you know, you're collecting data, that data goes into a system and then, you know, a surgery is recommended and finally a, a surgery is done. They're, they're admitted to the hospital. They, they have the surgery. They have the post-surgical care, whether it's a day or two or three or whatever in the hospital. And then they come home and then there's a follow-up. So you have this whole string of patient care um, that involves a ton of technology. Mm-hmm. You know, everywhere from what you've input on the, um, in the in like whether it's Epic or Cerner, you know, whatever kind of um, uh, patient data that you're like EHR, EMR. Yeah, the EHR, yeah, that you're, thank you. <laughs> Searching sure. for the word EHR, you know, yep. for the EHR data, which then can be, uh, 
related to an algorithm or AI or deep learning to, to help you on as you go forward. But And then when they're in the hospital, you have all the different uh, devices that they come in contact with, whether it's diagnostic or whether it's surgical. So, um, you know, when you when you see all of that, do you feel like some of the technology, you can almost tell like these people um, are forward thinking. They're thinking about how this interacts with digital surgery, with the whole system and the other, other technologies. Well, they're still back 20 years, but they're here because it's sort of a standard of care. Do you, do you have any feelings like that? Yeah. I mean, and I'll say, you know, there's a great book by Dr. Eric Topol called Deep Medicine, which uh-huh. really talks about the basic basis of AI and like a bunch of clinical applications. And I'll really recommend it for anyone who's in the clinical space looking to learn more about AI. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think one thing is just the lack of connectedness, like the fact that, you know, a lot of times like our outpatient EHR doesn't speak to our inpatient EHR, doesn't speak to, you know, the outside hospital EHR. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, so that's because, I mean, that seems like 20 years ago, you know, like everything is connected now. Like I think the EHRs really should be as well. Similarly, like, you know, let's say, um, like with the surgical platform, you know, if there could be some kind of integration uh, with the EHR would be great. I mean, I think not every tool is going to have an AI component, like orthopedics come to mind, you know, it's, it's a very mechanical thing. You know, a lot of those, if you're going to do an intramedullary nail, you're going to do intram- intramedullary nail, and, you know, someone like Dr. Kalendine is going to have to come and correct me on that. Maybe there's a lot of room for a smart integration on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are devices which are fine being purely hardware. And then I think there are devices that, you know, have room for some kind of smart integration, like the staplers come to mind, you know, like where the stapler itself can tell you like this tissue is too thick for the staple load. Whereas before, you know, you could just kind of crank it and it would staple through like the new robotic staplers analyze the tissue. And if it's too thick, they'll say, you know, don't fire the stapler or get a, get a thicker staple load. Okay. Yeah. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. And related to orthopedic surgery. Yeah. There are technologies where they're looking at putting, um, devices and hips and knees that like will communicate range of motion back to. So when you're at home, there recovery, you, go. You, yeah. Yeah, you, go, you go back to the doctor's office and they say, have you been yeah. doing any exercises? And he's, oh yeah, right. I have. No, you right. haven't. <laughs> the device will tell on you. Yeah, that's great. We've got all the data right here. You need to work harder at it. Or they could do that in a telehealth call. What platforms, like do you, do you see any particular platforms outside of, EHR, which I think is really important. And when I interviewed people about AI, they said that EHR was really the sort of a birthplace of a lot of AI, um, even though people hated it initially. It's turned out sure. to be a, a wealth of information. But do you see any other platforms that um, are going to make a, a near-term difference like in the next five, 10 years? I think the wearables are obviously going to be huge. You know, I mean, I was reading just recently about like having algorithms analyze like continuous heart rate data mm-hmm. and and they integrate with the the motion sensors and so if your increase in heart rate doesn't correspond to an increase in motion that'll detect a risk for afib and the risk for afib is pretty high for the average person over the course of their lifetime and so that's mm-hmm. already happening you know i think and and you know detecting afib early would lead to a clinically significant decrease in stroke potentially if you detect it and pick it up and either anticoagulate or treat them um, so I, I think there's things like that happening all around us where, where they integrate, you know, different things like um, like the hardware technology, the bandwidth technology, 
the AI technology and, you know, put it all together um, into, you know, making uh, differences in outcome already. Right. Yeah. My, my good old iWatch, um, Apple watch has AFib and, and several cardiovascular sensors that yeah. are by the FDA. Right. Uh, exactly. Now I'm a little bit surprised that, because I do have a cardiologist, I'm a little bit surprised that they haven't tried to tie into my Apple Watch or my Apple data. Um, they have another way of getting data, but um, um, I'm a little bit surprised at that. So now when we were talking about this confluence, all, all this activity that goes on in the course of managing a patient and, and conducting a surgery. You know, what, where, what happens, where does this work with product development? I mean, I think one thing I'll say is that if you're a medical technology company and you're a pure hardware solution, I feel like it's not as interesting. You know, you kind of have to have some kind of smart integration nowadays. And you don't want it to be like a buzzword where like, oh, we have AI ML component without backing it up. But right. I think you should, be think you should be thinking about it. You know, like, for example, if you're making like a new laparoscope, you know, you should be thinking about like having some kind of integrated video capture component, you know. And in, in, in some way to, you know, analyze that information and, and make things better. I think if you're just purely just a laparoscope, that's not going to be as interesting for investors or for clinicians. But I think that's, that's one big point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think companies need to be thinking about how do they address this, especially if they've got a product that's involved somewhere in this long path that we talked about related to a surgical patient, you know, where do they intersect with that patient now? And, you know, the, the people that are managing the, the uh, I guess, the mon even the monitoring equipment that the patient's hooked up to after, yeah. surgery, you know, in their room, you know, how do they help relay that data back? Now, of course, a lot of it's all hooked into, um, you know, various monitoring systems that the nurses are watching and so on. But how does somebody relate that to the, the outcome, make sure that the data is there, that they're not just... That's oh, right. We just provide a, you know, a monitoring system. That's right. So yeah, I think yeah. I mean, I I think you know, like you said, just a monitoring system is not as exciting. I think if that monitoring system, first of all, records the right information, because you know the input to any kind of like meaningful AI output is is, is huge. It's probably the, the biggest problem is getting the right inputs. You know, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. not an AI expert by any means, but like from what I've heard. It seems like getting the right input to feed the AI is is, is a, a big, you know, uh, problem. And if you do that right, you know, your out your outcome is going to be much more clinically relevant. So I think the fact that it records information, I think um, the fact that you do have some kind of meaningful outcome that you can show a, a difference in, whether it's you know something like length of stay or decreased morbidity. Um, and then I think connectivity is is important. I mean, I, it's so difficult in the medical world for devices to speak to each other. And a lot of it is for data security reasons. But, you know, I think we've got to figure out a way to make it more connected. I think if, you know, your heart rate monitor and like the bed weighs you automatically, you know, and it connects with your EHR and connects with your lab data. And if you can all put it together into having some kind of, you know, meaningful outcome, then can either like trigger an alert or even, even if you aggregate that data and it tells you like, you know, patients that had a decrease in blood pressure below, a map of 60 with this kind of surgery at a course, you know, during the course of their stay had an increased risk of this complication, you know, you'd be able to get to that kind of analysis. So right. I think, I think having that like 
I think measurement is one thing. I think we're beyond measurement. I think analysis is the next thing. And then to get the right analysis, you have to have connectivity. Okay. And then in the operating room, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the operating room. When you think about the anesthesia, you think about the instrumentation, the surgery um, uh, that's taking place. You know, this is something I don't know, but how much of that data is being collected? Um, yeah. Like, you know, the, the amount of time the surgery took, because, you know, we typically relate the length of surgery and the length of sure. time with recovery. I mean, sure. I don't know how much of that's being collected or how much of the data from anesthesia is being collected. Like how much, right. you know, anesthesia did the patient require and blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a term called the OR black box and it's a pretty true. Like once a patient goes into the OR, like you only have so much information about what happened in there, you know, I mean, and the anesthesiologists are get, actually getting better about providing much more granular data about like blood flow and heart rate throughout the duration of the case. Um, but then outside of that, it's like, you know, you have like pre and post-op diagnosis, you have the operation that was done, you have some kind of estimate of blood loss, which is usually not super accurate. Um, mm -hmm. You have, and then you have the case length, you know, and that's kind of it. I think what happens outside of that is you get from the operative report, which may be super detailed, may not be super detailed, you know, um, you kind of rely on the surgeon's word for it, to be honest with you. Um, but now I think we're getting to the era of surgical video reporting. And I think, I think that that's going to be really important. And, you know, to get into it a little bit, I think there's multiple facets to do that right. That's something that, you know, I'm working on um, is, like, first of all, it's what kind of consent do you need around it from the patient to record their video, right? Second one is, you know, video ownership. Who owns the video, right? Uh, there's a surgeon, there's the patient, there's the insurance company, there's the health system. You know, that's a complicated question. No one has the answer to. And then it's kind of like, you know, using that, that video, how do you, how do you actually use it meaningfully? So now people are working on like annotation, like algorithms that break the case down into, you know, here is laparoscopic entry, you know, here is like for for example, here is, you know, dissection of the vascular pedicle, here is stapling, here is anastomosis, here is specimen extraction, breaking it down so that now you can get all these videos, get their uh, separate components, um, analyze those and kind of get some kind of meaningful result out of it. And I think intuitive is, you know, ahead of the game because they've been recording video and analyzing stuff for a long time, but now there's a bunch of other robotics companies, a bunch of other, you know, purely surgical video analysis companies coming out that are doing some of that work. Um, and then finally is how do you link that information to meaningful outcomes? You know, like how do you give surgeons tools that actually help them? Like, whether it's augmented reality stuff, providing them with blood flow visualization, dynamic light is a great company working on that with, you know, laser speckle uh, imaging technology. Um, and how do you keep it from being distracting? Like what does liability around that look like if a surgeon made a decision around some kind of, you know, AR guidance and that decision was wrong? Like, you know, how do you account for that? There's, there's, there's a lot of questions, but it's an exciting time. So the augmented reality, do, do you end up using any of that now? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of AR stuff that we use already. I mean, you know, ICG is a good one, Indosign in green. You inject ICG, you can visualize it on your laparoscope or a robotic camera, and that's a form of augmented reality. It gives you a visualization of the blood vessels or a visualization of the bile ducts, for example, you know. Right. Um, right. You know, now there's even more talk of integrating 
like let's say there's a company called MediView that uh, integrates like a patient CT scan, for example. And so when you're looking through like the robotic headset, for example, you can see the underlying structures in a 3D way. So you can see like, okay, the kidney is under here. You know, the spleen is here, liver is here. It's harder for, uh, it's harder for soft structures, like the intestine, things like that. But for like solid organs, we have a pretty good sense of that. You know, the brain is another example where they have like, um, you know, mapping uh, of the brain to, to guide you. You know, a lot of that is done kind of using AR. Okay. Okay. What about the kind of AR where you have to wear goggles? Anything, is that in the operating room yet that you've experienced or? Not in the OR that I've experienced. I mean, the robotic console does have like a headset that you use that has two different eyepieces. You get a 3D view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen, I haven't done any operating using uh, AR headsets. I, I don't okay. think it's impossible. You know, I, I think you got to make, make it to where it's not cumbersome to use that you can still interact with your regular environment. Um, but I think it's coming, you know, I, I can't, I can't see why that wouldn't be there in the next, like maybe 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then, um, what should companies be doing so they're not left behind? I mean, how, how should companies, you know, whether they're a startup or they're a medium, medium size, the, the big companies are typically all over this stuff. I mean, they've sure. got right. plenty of money to, to do the research and to, um, be looking out in the future at what the at how the market may develop. But if you're medium size, and when I say medium, I'm talking even 100 million, 150 million. Yeah. Frequently, those companies sort of follow the old traditional route of product development. And how can you add the digital surgery component into the way these people look at things? I mean, I'll say to your point, you know, you'll notice all the large companies having a digital surgery strategy, you know, whether it's having, you know, uh, everyone's got some kind of video, video recording strategy. Medtronic's got their, um, you know, DS1 platform. Intuitive's got their Intuitive Connect Hub platform. You know, Stryker's got their integrated video recording cloud platform. You know, Steris has got their platform. Everyone's like working on that. And so that'll, that'll give you a good signal to, this is the this is where things are going, you know. Similarly, there is like so many surgical robots and like I've heard people say that it takes about a billion dollars to develop a surgical robot. And there's like at least five of them for general surgery alone. So that tells you, you know, like the strength of this like market growth, you know, like people are really investing in the space. Um, and so I think the digital surgery space is, is growing exponentially. The robotic space is growing exponentially. So I think one thing is if you're a company looking for a growth market, I think digital surgery and robotics is a great one. Well, even if you're not like going to, invent your own robot if you're inventing a device that could be acquired by a robotics company i think that could be something interesting to think about um and i think if you're like you know i'm a clinician i think if you're a clinician looking to get into the medtech space i think the digital surgery space is an interesting one because you know first of all it's so fascinating second of all like there's going to be so much growth you know you, you can really position yourself to like ride the wave you know uh, of this of this technological revolution um and i think for smaller companies um I think just to be aware of the developments that are happening so that you know, a lot of these companies are plan are like hoping for acquisition, you know, so they can kind of see where their product would fit into a larger company's portfolio. Right. Like, like here's a specific area where we can develop IP to where like a Medtronic would find it useful to put as part of the robotic platform, you know, something like that. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm just thinking like even if, if video is going to be such an important part of surgery going forward and, and analysis of that video, does a surgical instrument maker design instruments that are more detectable by a video camera? Sure. Yeah. Maybe so they don't reflect so much in the light and, um, totally. um you know, but they're, they're more detectable. I mean, just, you, you no, never, totally. Yeah, you know, just have to. So I guess think outside the box a little bit as to yeah. where you fit into this and how you might, you know, help your uh, physicians achieve their objectives um, as this digital surgery environment um, continues to grow. Um, no, for sure. Now I'll do a shout out to Doctor uh, Doctor Zoka, who has a company called Endolumic that has uh, a bougie with ICG it called, again? called Endolumic. Endolumic, okay. Uh huh. L U M I K, and they've got a bougie with ICG, so that, you know you can click on the ICG scope and you can see the bougie, you know, see where it is, you know, things like that, where it's not just a bougie, but it's got, you know, like an AR component to it essentially, which doesn't really add to the cost that much. It's basically impregnated with ICG, but now you can see it, um, you know, where, whereas before you really couldn't. And then when you're talking to companies that, whether it's just like talking to a, a vendor that, about something that you might be interested in, or maybe you're not interested in, that they're trying to get you interested in it, or when you're talking to a client from from your consulting company, do you ever see companies making mistakes in product development um, or acquisitions as it might relate to how things are going to ha- happen in the future? Yeah, I mean, I've had I've had some conversations with like larger companies and with people that are like you know looking to acquire certain technologies. And I think one question they have is like, let's say you put down, you know, like $50 million to buy this company and they have, you know, some kind of outcome difference. Like what is the acceptance going to be like from the surgeon? You know, I think, I think that, that that's always a good question to ask. I think even if, you know, you think your device solves a real problem and it does it well at, you know, an acceptable cost point, like it's going to have to meet the clinical environment and be taken up there. So then like, what is, you know, like what are the pain points that are actually solving for the clinician? Like maybe you're solving a problem that the clinician doesn't care about um, or maybe, or maybe they don't think you're solving it. I, I think that's something you have to consider is making sure. And same thing with AI, like let's say your algorithm prove some kind of endpoint. Like does that matter to the end user, which is going to be the clinician, you know? And then to have that voice of the customer perspective early on so they can design your solution accordingly. I think that's important. Similarly, I think, you know, one thing is just the reimbursement environment. Like when you're, you know, and you know this, like when you're making a product, is it just going to be a nice to have with an added cost? Or is there, is there more and more to your story that you can kind of compel, uh, you know, the value add committee, value analysis committee to really buy in on it? Right, exactly. And when you've consulted for companies, have you ever um, had to coach them, whether aggressively or gently, into a direction of a pivot so they actually have something that is of value? But they started out with something they think is of value, but it really, when you look at it, you, you sort of say, so what? But if you went this direction, you might have something of value. Have you ever run into that? Yeah, I mean, you know, without saying names, I mean, there's companies that I've talked to that uh, had a product that, you know, they thought was solving a problem. And it actually wasn't, it was a pretty simple product, which I lied because it was super low cost. Um, and they thought they needed this level of evidence to prove this kind of endpoint. And 
you know, when I went and talked to the people that would be using it, which is basically they were in the wound care space, they said that it was kind of didn't hit the sweet spot either for wound care, like PT wound care or for surgeon. It was kind of somewhere in the middle. And so they didn't really have a great end user defined. And so, um, you know, I gave them the feedback and, uh, you know, I didn't have a long term relationship with that company, which is fine. But I, I think it is good for consultants to provide real feedback because at, at the end of the day, you're not just looking to get paid for that company. You're looking to like have a reputation as a consultant who adds real value and gives real feedback, right? Even yeah. if it means, you know, saying the hard truths. And I think early on, it's, it's like exciting just to be involved in the company. Um, and I'm still pretty early on in my consulting career, but I think as you go further, you realize like, you know, these, this company really needs to think long and hard about it. And if the leadership team doesn't want to make the pivot, then maybe it's not the best fit, you know? Right. Right. And so for companies that have their own development departments, they have to be intellectually honest and very hard on themselves to make sure they're providing something of value and, and not just somebody's got a great idea. So we're going to go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause everyone in the room is going to be excited about it, you know, yeah. and that's, and like some, sometimes genuinely so, but I think when you, you need to really go out and ask the clinicians, like, would you use this? Would you advocate for this? What real problem is it solving for you? And then if you're getting like, yeah, maybe, or like, you know, maybe like a four out of five, like not getting a lot of five out of five responses, you have to really think about like what would take it there to really like add to the adoption curve, you know, because, because I think like that, that's what it's going to take to be successful in the market. Uh, you know, after you've developed, like solve the problem, develop the product, like to be successful, you really want your end user to be super excited about it. Yeah. And the fours out of fives are frequently just being polite. And it really was probably a four. Sure. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, any other, this has been really interesting. Um, any, anything that I've missed, any other advice that we should go over? No, I don't think you've missed anything. I think one thing that, you know, I, as I think about digital surgery, like, you know, everyone uses internet 3.0 uh, as a term. And, you know, I was thinking about like surgery can be thought of in the same way where you had like surgery 1.0, which was kind of developing sterilization, developing anesthesia. Then you had surgery 2.0, which is kind of laparoscopy and has recovery after surgery, that kind of stuff. And then now I think we're seeing the beginning of surgery 3.0 where you have like integration of, you know, all of the patient data. You, you're opening up our black box, recording the video, analyzing it using advanced tools like AI to kind of give patient specific information, align the surgeons to have, you know, like really even with laparoscopic or robotic surgery, it's really like our hands and the tissue, you know, practically speaking. But I think now we're going to have more and more like feedback on that, more information to really allow us to do more. And I mean, I, I, after that, I think you're going to have surgery 4.0, which is going to be even more autonomous surgery, which is, you know, kind of like looking at 2050 or something like that. Wow. Okay. Lots to look forward to. Yeah. That, that's great. And when, when will your article um, um, be out? The one where you're trying to um, yeah. define some of these elements related to digital surgery? Yeah. So we've got our first draft. The Sages group is reviewing it um, probably by the end of the year, to be realistic. Okay. Stages. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Sages. Okay. Excellent. Um, well, thank you, Jawad. Thank you very much for the, the time you spent with us today. This has been fascinating, and I think people learned a lot. 
My pleasure. Yeah, super exciting, Ted. Thank you. And we may have to circle back. We may have to circle back in like in a, in a year or something like that and talk about what's happened in the past year because some of this stuff is accelerating. Like you said, the pandemic you know, uh, hit the accelerator in a lot of areas, especially telehealth, um, but um, and also telesurgery, not telesurgery, but teleproctoring, for example. You know, who knows how much stuff is going to advance in the next year, year or two. For sure. Yeah. And I think we can even do a deep dive on one of the one of the elements or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. For, thanks again. Really enjoyed it, Ted. Thank you. Now we can see how a number of technologies are intersecting to enhance patient care, improve outcomes, and lower costs. How are you going to participate as an individual or as a company? The best thing to do is to talk to all the stakeholders in the utilization of your product and ask them how your product can better participate with their systems and other products to enhance outcomes. They will be grateful you asked. Thanks for spending time with me and Jawad today. Now go win your week.